we see here is uh, uh, for Psalms 14, we break it down as point number one, you need to know how God sees the depravity of unbelief, verse 1 and 3, and point two, you need to know how God promised deliverance for believers. So let's work this. Uh, let's look at uh, verse the first point, okay, verses 1 and 3. Now, really, the, the root, uh, verses 1 and 3 is very important to say this is human nature, okay? This is human nature. By the way, verses 1 and 3 is quoted in the New Testament. You guys know where it's quoted in the New Testament? It's actually Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. That long section, it quotes different Old Testament passage to describe that what all of us are sinners. And in the context of Romans 3, it's talking about Jews and Gentiles are what? All sinners, which means all people are sinners, okay? So in light of this, look, look, we see in verses 1 and 3, it identifies the root of our problem, which is really our rejection of God, okay? The root of all our problem is, is, goes back to what? The rejection of God, okay? Let's look at the first part of verses 1. It says, The fool have said in his heart, there is no fool. I admit, like how what uh, Mr. Burton mentioned earlier, that when you look at verses 1, it makes it very clear that unbelief is what? Irrational, yes? It's foolish. It's kind of, if I could even use the language, it is unintelligent. It is really, really foolish and dumb also as well, okay? But the Hebrew word for fool here is the word Nabal, okay? Or Nabal. You guys know anyone in the Bible named Nabal? Yes, okay. Abigail's wife, okay? Husband, I mean, okay? Not, not Abigail Lee, but uh, the woman in, uh, back in 1 Samuel 25, okay? 25, okay? So that's, that's good, okay? Uh, we don't have to turn there for the sake of time. But the next part, I do want us to turn to look at what the word means. It's more context. Turn with me to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, verse 6, okay? Okay. Isaiah 32 verse 6 uh, When we get there Could I have um, Could I have uh, Josh read that out loud What is it? Isaiah 32 verse 6 Isaiah 2 uh, 32 verse 6 Isaiah 32 6 Okay, we'll stop there, okay? So Isaiah 32, verse 6, use the same, same word for fool that we saw in Psalm 14, verse 1. But here I think it's interesting, because when we hear the word fool, we often think someone that's probably not very good at taking tests, Okay. But this is not what it's talking about. It's not talking about intellectual capacity. It's actually talking about a biblical definition of a fool, of Nabal, Nabal, is actually what? Someone that does things evil, okay? Does evil thing, okay? Not because they're intellectually deficient, although that's an aspect of unbelief, but really it's also as well, they're aggressively wicked, okay? Aggressively wicked. So the word uh, fool in Hebrew has more of an ethical dimension, it's talking about more morally that this person doesn't do what is right. And by the way, if you don't do what is godly, that is, by definition, irrational, right? Because who made this whole world? Who made this whole world? God. And if God tells us instruction how to live in this world, should we go by the owner's manual? The word of God? Yeah. Yes, okay? And if you don't, it shows that there is irrationality of your foolishness, okay? The irrationality of your foolishness. Um, uh, Ben W., could you hear me? Could you say something real quick? 
Okay, I think I have a problem with my mic today, okay? With my laptop, for whatever reason. Okay? Uh, so just FYI, okay? Okay, so let's go back on. Uh, with this is, notice the description is full. Also uh, goes on and says, what does he do? Verses 1, the second half. Is he says in his heart, there's no what? God, okay? There's no God, okay? I want to point this out. This observation is, this is not, he's not going around telling people, there's no God. In fact, if you look at it carefully, where does he say this to? He doesn't say this to others. He says it within his what? Heart, okay? By the way, that doesn't make it less of a problem. It still shows a greater problem because what? It shows that deep down and truly what this person believed is full. He believed there generally is no what? God, okay? In other words, he believed God doesn't matter, okay? So I think the result of all our problem is this reality. It begins, the root of our problem is we deny God, okay? By the way, this is true even with people that are so-called Christians, is we practically live our life saying God doesn't what? Matter, okay? And by the way, that becomes a problem because when you don't go by God's, uh, you don't take God seriously, that means you treat yourself like God or others and you follow your own desires, your sinful desires or uh, the rules of others rather than God and that's going to eventually be what? A problem because Proverbs says what? The way of a fool, the way of a sinner is what? Is hard, okay? The way of a sinner is hard, okay? So let's go look at verses 2 and 3 also. Ultimately, you always have to follow what the God says, you know? Yeah. And if you follow your way, then you're always going to be giving up short because... Yeah. yeah, we can share that for application later. Is that okay? Just so we can focus on this. Verses 2 or 3, the Lord looks down from heaven. So verses 2 goes further, describes the, uh, the problem, okay? The Lord looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understands, who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, okay? So when you look here in this passage, when you look here in this passage, one of the things you see here is that uh, what you see here is the Lord looking down means that God is what? Going to be assessing all of humanity, okay? He's going to be assessing all of humanity. And notice what happens, what, he, what happens here, okay? Uh, what He does here is when He looks down all humanity, the verb looking down actually is the idea of scrutiny, okay? The Hebrew verb is a careful look. This is not just, oh, a nonchalant looking glance, okay? But this is involved a scrutiny. You're looking, uh, paying attention to what? To details, okay? Paying attention to details, okay? By the way, do we ever see in the Bible other passages where the Lord looked down? Yes. Mm. Could you guys think of any Noah's examples? Noah's flood in Genesis 6-5. Yeah. Okay, he looked down. Okay, Genesis 6-5. Tower of Babel, do you remember? I think the most famous looking down. Which, by the way, there's a little bit of a, uh, I think, of a, a play on words, right? They're trying to build a tower going up to heaven. And it's apparently, they, as try as they might, God has to look down, which is what? A way of dissing them, of uh, the narrator dissing their effort to try to reach towards heaven, right? So that also, in Sodom and Gomorrah, notice in all three instances of God looking down is their judgment. Yes, okay? So what does this mean? The Lord looking down from heaven means there's serious implication that God's not just only looking down, scrutinizing things, but He's also going to be judging of humanity's sinfulness, Okay? Of humanity's sinfulness. Notice what is it God sees when He looks down is that no one seeks after who? God. Because all have turned aside, okay? Um, I know sometimes when I evangelize, when I set up a table at PCC and stuff like that, or Caltech, UCLA, sometimes people say, hey, I don't believe God is real because if God is real, why is it so hard to believe in Him? Why is it you have to give so many complex arguments for God in order to say God exists? 
Okay, but I, let me ask you guys this question: Is that a legitimate objection towards Christianity? To say, right. oh, it's so hard. I would say no. Okay, it's the same thing also as well. It's like when you when you go to math class in high school. Let's just say you took a math class in I don't know algebra two or geometry. Do you tell the professor, "Hey, I don't think algebra exists because I have to really think really really hard in order to give you an answer." But why would it be made so hard anyways? Do you think that's an argument just because it's complex? Is that a good argument to dismiss something as true? No, okay, that makes no sense, okay? You say, oh, uh, I don't believe in college because it's so hard. because It can't be true because it's so hard. That would also be irrational. Same thing also as well. When it comes to God, people doesn't seek God. That is why they say, oh, there's no God, okay? It's almost like you're, you don't even try the effort of looking at a math problem. To try to find the solution, and right away you say there's no answer. Okay, is that acceptable or not? The answer is not acceptable. Okay, now I know that's pretty tricky because today we live in a day of what Alexa. Okay, we live in a day of what uh, of uh, Siri, where people could go to Siri and say, "Hey, what's five times five, Right, and that kind of thing. And they're not trustworthy. Yeah. So, but we always realize, hey, just because. But by the way, not every answer is easily solved. Uh, worth that. Okay. Uh, so let's go back on with this. This is the root of our problem is unbelief. Say unbelief. Unbelief. It is the root of our problems. Okay. Now we're going to see the fruit of this. The fruit is depravity. Okay. Look, you're going to see four description here of the fruit of our unbelief. Mm -hmm. The first fruit is described in verses 1, the second half. It says, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Phil earlier asked a wonderful question. What does this mean? Really, the point here is to say, because we choose not to believe in God, we produce great sin. Notice it says, by the way, it says they. Do you have, notice how it began at first it says, a full or the full, which is what? How many people? Singular. One, right? But now it says the, they. So I think the purpose to say is this. It's not just happen to be saying, oh, some individual fool might happen to be uh, foolish. But, uh, when they say there's no God, but now it goes on to say, categorically, as a class, all those who choose to have unbelief, notice the description. They are corrupt. They, that is plural, have committed abominable deeds, indicating they're doing things that they should not. Okay. By the way, that's the sinfulness of man, right? I still remember one of the conversations I had with Jen, one of the first time I met with him, we started Bible study before he came to our church. He said to me, and I thought it was really profound, he says, did you notice we are so sinful? When we do something bad, we never stop there. Then we want to do something else more worse. And then we want to stop and look at how sinful we are. right? And, and look at the wonders of our sin. And I remember Jim made a really profound point. He, he, I know it was kind of funny. He said, like, look at how people would go use number two in the toy bowl, right? And they would kind of stop and look at it, right? And I remember thinking, that was actually really profound. I know it's kind of gross, it's kind of funny, but it's true. People are so sinful, we kind of look at what it is and we glory in that. The sinful things, the shameful things, the things that ought not to be, the things we ought not to look at, and we look at it and we celebrate it also as well. And we. One time, I guess, uh, yeah. my this, brother was being sued, and uh, my mom told you that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was worried that uh, everything not going on. Look at what God did, you know. Yeah, okay, let's look, focus back on the text. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, could you, you, we'll, we'll share later. Yeah, we'll share. Is that okay? Just so we can stick with, because of time. Is that okay? But later, you can share application. Okay, we do want you to share, but with application. Okay. So here we see they commit abominable deeds. Okay, look at the second application uh, description. There's no one who does good. You guys see that in verses 1? So, how many people does good? 
one? None, okay? No one, okay? There's no exception? Yeah, no one who does good. There's no exception, okay? So he's not exaggerating here when he says they're corrupt. He makes it clear, David is writing this, saying everyone is, no, no one is good. Mm. Not even uno, okay? Verses uh, the three, if you look at verses three in the, uh, in the middle, there's a third description. Together they have become corrupt. Remember we saw corrupt mentioned earlier in verses 1? It's mentioned again twice. If it repeats, do you think that's important? Yeah. Yes, okay. If your mom repeats to you again and again, take out the trash, do you think that's important? That means yeah. you probably didn't take out the trash yeah. and that's why it's important to repeat it. Yeah. Same thing, they are corrupted, okay? They be- By the way, it adds details now in verses 3. It's not just say individually they're corrupted. Even together, you say, oh, if there's, let's get together, maybe we could do something good. Notice it says together. With them united, what happens? Is there less corruption? No. no. They are still corrupt, okay? Okay? They're still corrupt, okay? Let's look at description number four. Third line, uh, uh, towards the end of verses uh, three, it says, There's no one who does good, not even what? One. one, okay? So it repeats this again. Remember the earlier um, verses one, it says, There's no one who does good. Now it's repeating again. There's no one who does good, huh? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, there's no one who does good, and then it says, clarified, not even one, okay? There's no exception, no one that Okay, so as application from point number one that we see today is, do you see your own sinfulness, right? By the way, our prayer life, the number one thing we should always go to God to pray for, I think, is confessing our sins, okay? Uh, we can't just go to God and ask Him like a genie bottle, ask for blessing, if we don't first confess our sin, and we don't ask for the greatest forgiveness of all, uh, a blessing of all, which is our sin to be forgiven, okay? Our sins to be forgiven and us to be washed. And God does want to bless us. But first, the prerequisite, the first step, the greatest blessing of all is to be forgiven of our sin. But do you see your sinfulness, okay? Uh, One of the good things I like about having evening prayer, evening devotion, is every day you will sin. But every day, at the end of the day, I go to God and confess my way. Sin. Okay? And when I confess my sin, oh Josh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, then you experience the peace of God and you sleep like a baby, okay? And by the way, when you see your own sinfulness, you need to realize practically there's unbelief, right? Practically behind every sin is unbelief, okay? But let's just say someone decides for the moment not to be faithful to his wife. Practically at that moment he says, oh what? I believe my wife will not know. And secondly, also God, I'm going to pretend he is not all-knowing. Okay? Or let's just say someone cheat on a school, school exam. At that moment, he says, oh, the teacher will not see, and I'm going to act as if God does not see. Okay? But that is practical unbelief. Okay? So the way we fight corruption, by the way, the verses we've seen in verses 1 and 3 of Psalm 14. Caleb just came in. We're looking at Psalm 14. Uh, we saw the word corrupt mentioned uh, twice in verses 1 and 3. But how do we avoid being corrupted spiritually? Is we need to be what? Transformed. And the way we're transformed is actually beholding God, okay? Beholding God in His glory, okay? That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, beholding the glory of the Lord, okay? So the way we're transformed is by looking at the glory of the Lord, okay? Let's look at point number two. Point number two is you need to know how God promises deliverance for belief, uh, uh, deliverance for believers, okay? This is in verses 4 to 7, okay? Let's look at verses 4. Caleb, would you be able to read Psalm 14, verses 4? Okay. Do not all the workers of which this John knew will eat of my people's bread, and 
Okay, thank you. Verses 4 has a slight transition. Earlier, verses 1 and 3 describe God in a third person. It's describing someone, the narrator, David, describing, telling us something about God. But notice in verses 4, now God is the one that does the speaking. God is speaking in the first person, where He says, where God looks at humanity, all the sinfulness we saw in verses 1 and 3, but now He's, God is asking a question of bewilderment, okay? It says, do not all the wickers of not, uh, wickedness not know, okay? What does He say they do not know? He's saying, hey, how could they go and oppress and persecute God's people, okay? If you're looking at verses 4, notice God calls His people what? My people, okay? My people. Yeah, my people, okay? And by the way, this is amazing because earlier we saw all of us are sinners, right? Verses 1 to 3. No one does good, not even one. So we're all sinners, therefore we're enemies of God. By the way, the fact that now in verses 4 says there's my people shows very clearly, not as our works that makes us godly, His people, but it's surely because presupposes, surely is merely by His grace, okay? The, listen, say this after me, say this after me, okay? We are His people, we are by, his people. people. by His grace. By his grace. Okay? So if you are one of God's people, it's by His grace. Not because you've done enough good things to earn this, okay? So now God says, hey, He states His truth. If people are persecuting God's people, and God is saying, I cannot believe there are people out there that's going to hurt God's people. And He expresses a surprise here. That the audacity of the wicked would go against God and God's people. By the way, this surprise here I think should comfort us. That God does not like it when God's people is persecuted by unbelievers. Okay? So, he, by the way, he also, God noticed how casually God's people attack God's people. He says where, hey, they're eating my people up like people eat what? Bread. Okay? Bread is like rice in the Mediterranean culture. Like earlier, uh, Ben Chung was eating pita bread. Or Noel was eating pita bread, right? Back then, that was the staple. That's like rice of that culture, okay? And he's saying, hey, these guys are eating rice. Like, they're trying to eat God's people like they're eating rice on a normal day or eating bread on a normal day. And you know what? That ought not to be, okay? That ought not to be, okay? So, and God is expressing bewilderment and saying, hey, this is not supposed to be the case. So, by the way, this should give us comfort. Okay, that when God is expressing anger and also empathy for His people, this should comfort us greatly. Okay, this should comfort us greatly in our persecution as believers. And by the way, believers will be persecuted, and believers are going to be persecuted even more when the end of days, right? When the end game of all end games is going to be happening, we will be persecuted more, and this will be comforting. By the way, even right now, sermon audio is being downloaded of our church in a country that's persecuted. Okay. Uh, and people are listening, and I hope even hearing this beyond just us Americans here in the West is I hope this comforts them to say God knows and He cares. He has empathy, and He expresses frustration and bewilderment that people will go against His own people. That should comfort us. But now we also see now He comforted that God turns with His attention. We're going to see God describes description of His deliverance for believers. Okay, look with me in verses five. Verses 5 describes God is with His people even now, okay? Verses 5, could I have some volunteer read out loud verses 5? There they are in great relation. God is with the righteous generation. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Verses 5, uh, notice it says God is with the righteous generation, okay? I think every generation will have a remnant that is righteous. But this righteousness is not naturally we're righteous. It's supernaturally 
because God imputed the righteousness of Christ and saves us to be His people, okay? But here with this, God literally in the Hebrew it says, is not God is with, it's literally God is in the generation of the righteous. By the way, God is in the believers. Is that true or not? New Testament, this is the Old Testament, you might say, oh, I don't know if this is really what the Hebrews mean. Later in the New Testament, it's going to be impacted, explained even more. When you believe in Christ, you are in Christ. We have union with Christ. Remember Christ gave the analogy in John 15, the branch and the what? Vine. Okay, yes, okay. We are grafted in, okay. So, and by the way, who lives in us also as well? God. God, God the, which member of the Trinity? The, the Father, but is there a passage that says directly? No, it says that it's through the Son, because the Father is in the Son. And if you, have the, if you believe in the Son, you have the Son, and the Son already has the Father. And who else? Which other member of the Trinity that lives in us, convicted us of sin? Holy Spirit. Good, very good, okay? So God is in us, okay? God is in us. You can't get any closer than that. You can't get any closer than that, than someone being inside of you. Okay, then someone being inside of you, and God is inside of us, just as we are inside God the Son. Okay, in a spiritual realm. Okay, that's incredible. This should give us what? Give grace. This should give us great encouragement that when people oppose us, even when we are fighting our sin, God is helping us, guiding us, convicting us, shaping us, and even protecting us, and even comforting us with His presence. Okay. By the way, we need to know this. By the way, sometimes we don't think these verses. We don't have great application because we forget we're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war, okay? And we go ahead and sin. We suffer the consequences and all of this. So we, when you live for God, there will be people that oppose you. There is a spiritual war, but God says, I am what? With you. In fact, this verse says, I, God says He is in the righteous generation. Let's look at verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. Could someone now read me verse 6 out loud? Someone read verse 6 out loud. Okay, so notice in verses 6, it shows very clearly that we are what? We are also, um, verses 6, God is our refuge, okay? God is our refuge, okay? Um, so He comforts us, and in times of trouble, He is our shelter from harm, okay? And in verse 7, which is the main point I really emphasize, none of this is possible. We're not saved. So verses 7 gives us the greatest deliverance. Stated very clearly and explicitly, God provides salvation. Okay? Say God. God provides salvation. Okay? It says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel come out of Zion. What a beautiful truth. Remember earlier we saw that everyone is sinful? Everyone's, so I think we must never forget Because some pe- commentaries I read Was pointing out things Oh this is maybe talking about more physical deliverance Than spiritual But I think that ought not to be Because remember it began in a very strong moralistic term That all of us are sinners No one is righteous, not even one And in, in essence this is driven by our root problem Is unbelief Okay uh, Is unbelief And now there's a people How could that be possible? That's possible because there's salvation That comes from where? Out of Zion, or Israel, and Zion is what? The hills of Jerusalem, okay? Did that get fulfilled literally? Yes. Where is Calvary? Where did Christ die on? In the hills of Calvary, yes? He died in Jerusalem, or outside the gates of Jerusalem. And He died and provided salvation. 
And where is that physical location when must it take place? It must come from Israel, yes. But also, what part of Israel? Israel is a big country. Specifically from Zion. Okay? I would actually say this is prophecy that was predicted and was fulfilled. There's other prophecies elsewhere even more explicit than this. But this was fulfilled. That our deliverance would come from where? Zion. Specifically to Christ dying for our sins. This is the greatest deliverance, even more than being saved physically from God's enemies, okay? Because God's enemies, could they take our life physically? Yes. Yes, okay? Could Christians be killed? Yes. But yet, even though they, Jesus says what? Don't fear the ones who could kill you, but fear the one who could take your life physically and also what? Cast you into hell itself. And yet the same God who we should fear is also the one that provided salvation and Zion itself for us. So his application, what does it mean if you realize God saved you? First application is what? We need to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Okay? We need to rejoice in God of our salvation. Have you rejoiced, as verse 7 says, concerning the salvation of God? Let me ask you guys this question. What was the last time, without being at church uh, in your own personal life, you actually went to God and say, thank you, God, for salvation? Anyone want to answer that? Has it been a while? Yes. Like beyond just like when you pray for me, oh dear God, thank you for this food and thank you for salvation. But like generally heartfelt rejoice. Mm. Like your emotions after went up. Like if you have a Fitbit, your heart beat actually goes up a little bit from worshiping and saying, God, you're so awesome, right? Okay? When was the last time you, you did that? By the way, I think if you the more you think about the joy of your salvation, the more you have joy despite your circumstance. You realize you could have joy despite your circumstance? We often think we could only have joy from our circumstance. But if that's the case, guess what? Our circumstance always what? Changes. But you could have contentment and joy and hopefully not be dying earlier from stress and heart attack. How? By having joy in the Lord, okay? So rejoice in salvation that God provides. Second application question. This verse shows salvation is Israel out of Zion. How... Have you trusted Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, right? I hope everyone here have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And by the way, this is the greatest salvation, right? Uh, In the midst of persecution also, remember, even with smaller things, uh, persecution is a smaller thing. But the only way you can see it smaller is you have to see your greatest problems going to hell. And that's all. But in the midst of persecution, remember what? Remember God is what? God is our... But good, but He's also our deliverer, okay? God is our deliverer, okay? I was actually thinking this week, you know, one of the wonders of Facebook and today's wonder and everything else is sometimes it sends you reminders of things, okay? Uh, I haven't really talked as much, although I think some of you guys have. Um, I've been in our church since 2001, okay? But I would actually say the hardest time I've ever been with our church was actually five years ago. Uh, five years ago this week, uh, when it was actually a problem dealing with a seminarian. Uh, a guy didn't want to go to master seminary, but it turned out the guy was actually a creeper, okay? He was a predator, okay? Uh, he went to another seminary, and there's accusations in the other seminary. I went to the other seminary, asked uh, the dean of student life there, and they said, yeah, this guy has some serious issues, apart from the accusation and everything. And then at that time, it was really hard, because that guy, when all these things was coming about, was being brought to Master Seminary's attention and everything, and to our church attention. I was on vacation. I was actually with Mr. Burton and the in-laws. We were in a cabin. 
And then the guy starts saying, you know what? It's Jimmy that sent out all these fake a- accusations. He's the one sending all these emails. And I was so glad on my anniversary, August 14, five years ago, we were eating in a cabin together, eating meal. I was about to go on my phone uh, online. Fortunately, we were in a cabin that had no internet. And I was about to go online, you know, just to Zoom through Facebook. And my wife says, really, it's our anniversary. Could you not just eat for the first time without things? I said, yeah, you're right. And that saved me because I was, I think some people thought I was the one that started because I was the only one that said, hey, this guy had a problem. Everyone else was like, oh, he's so wonderful. And I, was, I felt I was the only one that evangelized with him, was discipling and said, hey, this guy has some serious red flag. When we evangelize, he just gives a little too much attention to guys. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like guys look at girls walking by, but this guy just, just a little bit too strange, okay, in looking at other guys. And eventually, you know, that was the worst time. I actually thought, wow, I'm going to be quitting, okay? I want to quit. But I think God taught me a lot about forgiveness during that time. I also believe at the time God taught me, hey, you have to do things the right way. You must turn the other cheek. Even if other people did not know the full tale and say, hey, how come you're so, like, legalistic, won't let this guy recommendation seminar, even though no one knew the story, and, and then I still would not share anything. I realized God vindicated. Because exactly two years later, on the same date of my anniversary, now we found indisputable evidence that this guy actually had a double life, okay? This guy had a double life. And as soon as that was discovered, uh, even our church was still saying, let's be gracious, let's still don't cut his funds for seminary, but let's make sure he gets counseling. And guess what happened right away? The guy just disappeared that same day after the confrontation. We never saw him again. Even though our church was giving money to say, we're not going to destroy the guy, we're not going to tell your seminary, but we're still going to be uh, counseling you and everything else, okay? But I bring this to say is this, could God deliver? Yes. Yeah. But we need to realize when we want God's deliverance, we have to do things God's way, okay? Yes. Listen, say this after me, okay? We mm-hmm. have a higher rules of engagement than the enemy. You guys know what I mean by that? You guys know that in combat there's a rule of engagement? When I was in Iraq, you know the rules of engagement was really strict. By the way, when we see someone with a gun, could we shoot them? What do you guys think? No, you can't shoot a guy with a gun, which is pretty crazy. I don't think most people realize that. We cannot shoot a guy that's walking around with a gun. But we can shoot them when they what? Point at at that, okay? By the way, that gives who the advantage? (laughs) The other guy. guy. But then what we do is we point our weapon at everybody, okay? That's what we do, but we don't pull the trigger, okay? Mm -hmm. But I bring them to say this. Some people say, oh, that's unfair. I remember what 18, 19-year-old, young buck marines said, oh, that's not unfair. You know, give the advantage. But now I'm older. I say, that was right. Okay? You want to make sure, you don't want to make enemies that accidentally kill a whole bunch of people, innocent people. But in the long run, now that I'm older, I say, that is right. The rule of engagement. Can I say this also as well? We're in a spiritual war. But the spiritual rule of engagement we have against those who is the enemy of his people and with non-believers, is we have to have a spiritual warfare of loving even our enemies, okay? Even loving our enemies. But the way we can still love our enemy, the motivation we can have, is God delivered us. And we also want the deliverance of non-believers, God's enemies, to switch side, to be regenerate, to be born again, to be truly born again and be believers, so that it's all for the glory of God. In Him delivering not just us, but perhaps one day, some of the elect that are God's enemy would also be saved as well, okay?